I'm going to give you a couple numbers. If anyone has a calculator, anybody bring a scientific calculator with you to church? That'd be the most random thing that you could ever bring. Can you imagine that if someone opened their bag and be like, I got it. What are they called? A T84? What do they help me out? Where are my math teachers at? What are they called? T what? TI-84. I was pretty close. That wasn't bad. Okay. Nobody's got that. However, you probably have a calculator on your phone. So I'm going to give you a couple numbers. I've done the math in advance. So I'll fact check you if anyone wants to do this with me. Ready? All right. Here's the first number. 10. Oh, that's not bad. Type in 10. Okay. Let's multiply that by 52. And let's multiply that by 26. I'll give you those numbers one more time. Ready? Okay. 10 by 52 by 26. Anyone want to give me that number? 13,520 is the number of hours, the conservative estimate that I've played of video games in my life. But actually, that's a lowball number. Let me tell you how I got there. I started at the age of seven. I'm 33 now, so that's how I got the 26 years. I averaged, so my parents used to put limits on my video game time when I was little. So I averaged like 10 hours a week. Is that fair for a little kid with Super Mario in the 90s? Is that fair? Like, like 10 hours a week, okay? Um, it was, let's, let's be honest, I was more Command and Conquer than Super Mario, but it, that's another story for another day. Then we get 52 weeks a year, 26 years, but I turned 33 six months ago, so that's a low number. Now they say that 10,000 hours makes anyone an expert in anything. So if I've thought of this, if I would have taken the, all the time I've done playing video games and learned the cello, how amazing would I be? <laughs> Unbelievable, right? Okay, however, I don't know if 13,520 hours minimum has really given me anything other than this one principle that I want to share today. In video games, when you were growing up, if you ever went to an arcade, you would play a little bit, and you would have lives. Is anyone familiar with the concept of lives? Okay, so imagine we play Super Mario, and it's 1986, and you go into the arcade in Hyannis. Sound good? Anybody there in 1986? Am I talking about anyone's childhood? Okay, there we go. So you walk in there, and mom and dad have given me some quarters, so I put them in the machine, and now I have some lives. The problem is I'm not very good at Super Mario, so I quickly die. I fail. Oh, but, but I get five lives, so now I've got four little Marios to go, and what happens? I fall into the pit. Okay, now I have three lives. Now I run into one of those little, are they called Lupas, Oompas? I forget what they're called. They're, they're, they're called something like that. I forget. I don't remember. This is less my generation. Now I got two lives, and I make it to Bowser, and he gets me. I got one life, and I'm just not very good, so I have zero lives. Now what happens? I put more quarters in the machine because I come to this screen and it says, game over, continue. And when it's in the arcade, I'm able to continue by putting in quarters. Now, that's less my generation. I'm a little younger than that. For me, video games came to the house and mom and dad bought the game in advance, so I didn't put in more quarters. When I came to the screen, game over, continue, I would just simply hit the start button and I'd keep going. No further payment needed. So, what I realized is that video games, for those of us who play them and we come to this screen, it teaches us something about failure. Failure is part of video games. It's an innate part of what you do. You learn to overcome failure and you keep playing for hours and hours and hours till you've invested 13,000 
520 hours doing I'm not sure what. But that is something that's really actually helpful, is video games teach us that if it seems like it's over, we actually get a second chance. Now, keep that motif in your mind because we're going to look at Exodus 34, where we come to this point where the Ten Commandments are shattered, and it looks like total failure. It looks like game over. It seems not very good when we come to this part. And here's the thing. It was kind of game over. That is reality. Israel had failed. We'll talk about how we got there in a second. Moses had failed as a leader. It was game over. Also, God gave them a second chance and a chance to continue. It's kind of like that video game screen. When I run out of Mario's, it is game over. Also, I can continue. And so that's what I want to think of. Let's go to our next slide. We're going to look at how we got here. So last week, we had an opportunity to see that Moses was helping lead the people out of Egypt, but he was taking it all on himself. Do you remember that? He sat there as the big shot, and from morning until evening, he was trying to deal with everyone's squabbles. And it was a wonderful reminder. We had a Bible study this past Wednesday where we talked about this, and one thing that came up was, wow, look, even thousands of years ago, Everybody had so much division and partisanship and polarization that Moses had enough disputes that he could every single day wake up in the morning, do disputes all day of the people, and do that every single day. People always have had disputes. And that's actually a wonderful, comforting thing to remember that we are not alone in this time, that that's always been part of the human condition and experience. But Jethro helps him out, and Moses builds some teams, and they get started, and now God gives the law. So in Exodus 19, and especially in 20, we see the Ten Commandments. Now, I wonder, does anyone have the Ten Commandments on their fridge? When I was growing up, we still had people with Ten Commandments. Oh, that's okay, I'm curious. Anyhow, so the Ten Commandments are given, and now God gives the law. Israel accepts, and Moses leaves up on the mountain. He goes up on the mountain, and now all the people are there. Do things go well? Is the Bible about all the people in the Old Testament uh, being perfect? It's not. Is Moses the hero of the Bible? He's not. He fails a whole bunch of times. Are the Israelites the hero of the Bible? They're not. Who's the hero of the Bible? God is the hero of the Bible, okay? God is the hero of the Bible. Not, not Moses, not the Israelites. What do they do? They say, where is this Moses fellow? Where did he go? He supposedly led us out of Egypt, but I don't see him anymore. Come, Aaron. Hey, make us, uh, make us a God that we can follow it, and that's what led us out of Egypt. And so they build this calf, and they decide that this thing made out of gold is actually their God. And it goes horribly wrong, and Moses comes down, and he has to deal with it. And there's pain, and there's difficulty, and there's sorrow, and there's sadness, and there's a mess. But it's not the end of the story. The people replace God, but now we come to Exodus 34. Even though Moses comes down the mountain, smashes the Ten Commandments, and deals with the disobedient people, God gives a second chance. And that is what we see here. And that takes us to a problem we have that we all deal with. There is a disconnect between our head knowledge and our experiences. We see failure as the end. No matter how long we've been involved in church, no matter how much we love Jesus, no matter how much we follow Him, it's easy to first see failure as the end. But God sees failure as the beginning. And there's a disconnect there. 
Because both of those things are actually true. It is true that we see the game over screen, and also there's the continue button. From our human perspective, we see failure as the end, game over. From God's perspective, God continues to give second chances and third chances and 999th chances and over and over, right? And grace, unmerited favor. And sees our failure as the beginning and asks us to respond and to repent. But the reality is, is what we have to be careful of is that that doesn't mean we're saved by our repentance. We're not, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. So we have to look at an underlying theological foundation. And let's look at this. So the reality is, is that we have to use these two big ideas, imminence and transcendence. Have you ever heard of either of these? Imminent means God is with us. Transcendent means God is beyond us. In an either-or world, God is both and. It's kind of like that game over, continue. That's a both and. It's not game over or continue. Both of things are true. In an either-or world, God is both with us, imminent. We're going to see this throughout Scripture. We're going to see that God's literally... We're coming to a point where we're going to do about a month in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And if you're following our podcast, you're going to hear a lot of, and they took the blood of the ram, and they put it on Aaron's ear and on his piggy toe. And then they went to Aaron's son, and on his ear and on his piggy toe, etc. And you're going to hear all these things, and you're going to hear all these things about the tabernacle. Now, you can look at that and say, I don't get why. Why do those matter? Why are those included? It's because some of those things remind us of God's imminence being with us and God's transcendence being beyond us because God literally dwells among his people in the tabernacle and the tabernacle travels with the people in all of their wanderings in the wilderness. Also, we know at the very beginning of the Bible, the first line is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God transcends us God is beyond us. God is the creator. So that matters. Because our big idea today is God is all about the second chance. God is all about the second chance. And that's something we see in this text. And as we throw up this big idea here, we see that God is all about the second chance because he is with us and he's beyond us. At our times where we see game over, God says, hey, continue. You know, I'm I'm greater than you, I'm with you, I'm both and, I'm here, I love you, follow me, repent. And we see that God gives that second chance. And so we're going to see that today. We're going to see what happens after I fail. It's a great question. Because who here likes to say that you try to do your best to live a good life? Anybody show of hands? I feel like pretty much all of us, none of us set out. Something I love about comic books is um, if you ever read old comic books, X-Men. Any X-Men fans here? Anybody like the X-Men? So here's the thing with the X-Men. In the old X-Men, uh, you had these two groups. You had um, Professor X's Charles Xavier's Good Mutants, um, and then you had the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and they called themselves that, led by Magneto. Now here's the thing. Most people don't say, hey, I'm trying to be the bad guy, right? All of us are trying to do the right thing. We're trying to serve. We're trying to be kind. We're trying to build a better world. We're trying to do the right thing. So God is all about the second chance. And our question is pretty simple. What comes after failure? Now, you're going to see very clearly in this text, in Exodus 34, you're going to see what we can do after failure. Yes, we fail. Yes, God gives us a second chance. And so what happens? Here's what we start with. 
after failure, and we'll throw this first point up, keep going. Keep going. Don't give up. If you come to that thing where you say, hey, I'm experiencing a game over screen in my marriage, in my parenting, in my job, in my faith, in my community, okay, yes, that was failure. Failure is real. We're not going to sugarcoat and pretend it wasn't. However, also, God gives us a second chance. He's beyond us and He's with us. He transcends us and He's imminent. Okay, so keep going. Accept the second chance. Start walking forward. Let's see what Moses does. So the, sec- the, the text we're going to look at is really going to be three parts. You can see at the beginning, and we read it earlier, Moses is going to do the hard work to meet God up on the mountain. God's going to meet Moses with the, on the mountain, give kind of the terms of the covenant, the expectations. Moses is going to come down the mountain, change. Literally, his face is going to shine. But here's right at the beginning. It says this. Moses, this is in verse 4, Moses chiseled out two stone tablets, tablets of stone like the first ones. Early in the morning, he climbed Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Now, spectacularly awful failure had happened. Moses had smashed the tablets because the people were so disobedient. He thought, if you read earlier in Exodus 32, he turned to Joshua and he's like, is there war going on? And They're like, no, actually, they're just celebrating. They're having like a giant festival to not God, to something else. And they're just out of control. And he says to Aaron, his brother, who's supposed to be the priest, he says, Aaron, you've let the people get completely out of control. The situation goes wonky. It goes awful. It's horrible. It's not good. That's failure. However, also, God gives a second chance. And that's what we see here. So I want to read this part again. And I want us to look at something. And I'm going to throw it up in a second. Okay, here's what it says. In verse 4, Moses chiseled out two tablets of stone like the first ones. Um, They didn't have technology like that. That's not a chiseling machine. He didn't get into this like giant thing and, and it chiseled for him. He chiseled. Okay, that's hard work. Okay. He did. Early in the morning, he climbed Mount Sinai. How old was Moses? Over 80. Moses was over 80. Anybody over 80? or think about when you're over 80, you want to climb Mount Sinai by yourself? Okay, let's keep going for a second. Uh, oh, oh, early in the morning. Mm. Anybody not a morning person? Yeah, there's my not morning people. Okay, so literally, I want to throw this graphic up because sometimes there's things in the Bible that are super helpful. The Bible is not a self-help book. It's not. It's not a self-help book. Also, there are times that there are some lessons there that we can learn from. Start back at square one. So if God gives me a second chance, I should be willing to recarve stones. The reality is, let's say I fail in my marriage, in my parenting, in my workplace, in my community, in my personal faith. In a video game, this is a thing with video game. If I die, I don't usually start right where I was. I go back to the beginning of the level. In our lives, start back at square one. God's giving me a second chance, sometimes I got to go back and do some of that hard work again. I got to recarve those stones. And the recarving the stones isn't usually the hardest part. Being the 80-year-old man climbing the mountain is, sometimes I got to climb that mountain again. Now, that doesn't mean we're saved by works. This is not a salvation thing. This is a faithfulness thing of a how do I now follow God? I've received a second chance. Where do I go next? 
I have to probably recarve the stones, climb the mountain, and do it early in the morning, make it a priority. So think about this in your life. If you've experienced failure, and, and who's perfect here? Anybody get life totally perfect? My hand was not actually up. I was just giving you the opportunity to put your hand up. Okay. So therefore, all of us have stones we have to recarve at some point. We've got to start back at square one, okay? All of us have to have times where we fail and we say, God, I was wrong. I repent. I turn away. Okay. And God's like, I forgive you. Now you got to climb the mountain again. You got to do the hardest part again. And you got to make it a priority. It's not hey, God, I'll kind of get to you on, on my timetable. That's probably why I failed the first time. One of the reasons the Israelites failed is they weren't making God the priority. They weren't waiting on his timing. They said, hey, where's this Moses fellow? Let's, let's build an idol. Let's, let's build a statue, and it's going to solve everything for us. Now, this is one that is going to be really easy for us to give examples of. I can give you a million, right? We could talk about the theologian John Wesley, about how he sets out for America as a young pastor and he wants to make a huge difference. And he's so excited. He comes here. He's a British, British pastor. He comes over to the Savannah colony and he's so excited to make a difference. And does he? He does not. He has this kind of weird emotional thing with this young lady, but then he decides for legalistic reasons he can't marry her, so she marries someone else. And he gets super weird with his church power and he denies her communion. And then he's kicked out of the colony. And he was on a boat as a sad, miserable guy who failed. But God gives him a second chance. He has this strange warming of his heart. God gives him a second chance. And then in his life, there's things where he's got to now recarve stones. He's got to st start at square one. He's got to do the hardest part again. He's got to climb that mountain. And he's got to do it all early in the morning, making it a priority, making the mission and focus of his life. I could talk about him. I could talk about the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement, Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith failed as a pastor multiple times in multiple churches before he successfully planted a church, and no church is perfect. The reality is, is that we can look at any ministry and say, this is what someone got right, this is what someone got wrong. But the reality is, is that Chuck Smith, he went to a church in Corona, California on the first Sunday at 57 people in worship. Two years later on his last Sunday, how many people did it have? The great founder of Calvary Chapel in that movement. It had 27 people, including seven members of his family. And he accepted that he failed, and he started back over at square one. I could think of a non-faith example, but one maybe we can relate to that's not a pastor. When I was in high school, I was a theater kid. Any, any theater kids here? Anybody do drama? Okay, so here's the thing. We were in West Side Story. Now, I was in a private school at the time, so the story I'll tell you, you'll say, well, that wouldn't make sense in a public school. You're right. It was a private school, so they can do whatever they want. But here's the thing. We were in West Side Story, and our dress rehearsal, did it go amazing? It went spectacularly horrible. And our director said, hey, so that wasn't good. Uh, one of two things. Either we're not ready for the show, or we can just try again. Do you want to try again? And so we tried again, and we all called our parents. This was... Let's see, this was 2004, so I borrowed someone's phone. And we all called our parents, hey, mom and dad, we're going to be here another two hours. We're going to try to do the play again. And then we recarved the stones. We climbed the mountain, did it all early in the morning again, right? We started square one, did the hardest part, made it the priority. And so my question is, okay, here's what we're asking. 
It's hard to figure out what comes after failure, but God gives us a second chance. Our big idea of today is that God is all about the second chance. So what about us in our marriages, in our parenting, in our families, in our workplace? Can we accept God's second chance and acknowledge that there's times where we got to do these things. We got to recarve those stones, climb that mountain, do it early in the morning. Start at square one. Do the hardest part again. Make it a priority. Being obedient, being faithful ourselves, we're not perfect, and it's hard work. It's hard work to try to live the right way and to follow what God asks us to do. And so what happens after that? So that's the beginning, and now, now Moses climbs the mountain, and this over 80-year-old man is on the top of the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights without food or drink. Anybody want to do that? Anyone want to go for it? Okay. No, we don't. Okay. But here's the thing, and here's our, here's our second idea. Before compromising again, so what happens after failure? Before compromising again, I got to remember that only God is God. And that's something you'll see in this whole middle section as we throw this idea up on here. Before compromising again, I got to remember only God is God. The whole middle section where God's giving the covenant, it's a reminder. Jesus was asked to summarize the law, and he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that means, with all my heart, means I don't take some of my heart and give it to other things and other gods. In the ancient world, that meant these little statues. In our world, we don't may maybe necessarily have the little statues. Maybe we put other things. We'll talk about priorities in a moment. But I want to look at verse 14. We're going to jump down the text a bit. And here's what God is going to say to Moses. Verse 14. Because before compromising again, if we remember that only God is God, here's verse 14. You must worship no other gods. For the Lord whose very name is Jealous is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. The whole biblical idea of idols are false gods, things that we put where God should go. And so we see this very tangibly two chapters before with the failure that got us here with the Israelites. They literally said, where's this Moses fellow? I don't know who let us out of Egypt. Clearly it wasn't anything to do with Moses. Let's put something else in its place. And so they make this little calf and things go horribly wrong. God highly values his relationship with his people, with each of us. He does. We talked about how God is with us and God is beyond us. God is not only transcendent. If God only was beyond us, transcendent, then he would kind of make people. Maybe you've had this. Has anyone ever made a model car? Like, like from one of those kits? You make it, and then you put it in your garage, and it's been there for 30 years. And you, you, this is the first time you're thinking about it. And you're saying, wow, I made a... a, a 57 Chevy, and it's probably covered in dust. That's not God's relationship with us. So we want to be super clear about that, is that God is jealous about his relationship with us. He doesn't want us to put other things first. He wants to be the priority. God is saying, hey, make me the priority. A after compromise, remember that only I'm God. There's, there's no other God, J just me. And so in the ancient world, they would do this with these little statues, and that's not necessarily what we do. I have this pyramid that I use, and I've inverted it in this next graphic. I love using this with guys I work with and young families. Priorities in a world that doesn't make sense, making sense out of the world, usually says, God is number one. If God is my first priority, if I'm making God God, everything else flows about it. 
The problem that happens is that we take other elements in our priority list and we make them more important. If I make my spouse God, is my spouse, I mean, I have a wonderful spouse, but is my spouse able to be God for me? No. If I make Laura, my wife, God, she's going to let me down as God. If I take my children and make my children God, well, what happens if they have a horrible illness or there's a horrible tragedy? If we put other things in the wrong place, if we get our priorities out of whack, then we have these issues that we see Moses and the people dealing with, and that's why God is saying, hey, only make me God. I'm a jealous God. Don't make other things. Look at this very tiny little print. You see that? It's kind of like in the doctor's office where you do the eye test. The really tiny print. You know what that says? Let's read this. Priorities. Number one is? Number two is? Number three is? And now squint your eyes. What's number four? Everything else. Okay. I, David, I have questions. Okay. Uh, does that include my job? Okay. Um, what about my hobbies that I really like? Yeah, yeah, those are in there. That's everything else. What about um, the fact that I just like to have alone time playing video games? Is that on there? Yeah, that's everything else. Sure, that's another priority. But if I make video games my God, video games are going to let me down. If I make my truck my God, what happens when my truck is no longer working. Now, now I lost my God, right? So God wants us only to make Him God. We have to look at the priorities. So here's my question. After the second chance I receive, am I only making God God? Because we get ourselves into trouble. One of the reasons we fail in the first place is because we try to make something other than God, God in our lives. Can we agree? That's one of the big issues. And so I want to read this list one more time. Priority number one is? Priority number one is? And priority number one is? Okay. You thought I was going to have you read the whole list. Here's the thing. If I make God the first priority, everything else will start to make sense. That's one of the things. People say, why Leviticus? Why Exodus? Why Numbers? Why all this stuff? It's reminding us of God's moral law, of the idea that God wants us to make Him first, and to follow him, and everything else will come out of that. And so, okay, so after the second chance, am I remembering God is God? Well, do I have some work today to do on my priorities? Maybe you want to jot this down, take a picture of it, and say, wow, okay, um, I get it. Maybe I'm making something else God, and that's something I can work on, because maybe things in my life are going to make a little more sense. And here's our final thing. At the very end of the text, there's this wonderful passage. It's this odd, strange, wonderful passage where Moses' face is shining. Because what we see is that spending time with God changes us. Spending time with video games changes us. Spending time working on our truck changes us. Spending time doing anything changes us, right? The reality is, is wherever I invest my time, that changes me. Spending time with God changes me for the better. Let's look at what happens. We're going to go down to verse 29. If you're with us in the text, keep going down. This is the third part of our text. Now Moses comes down. It says this, 29. When Moses came down Mount Sinai carrying the two stone tablets, well, look at that. He chiseled the new ones, and he, so he did the hard work, and he walked up the mountain as an 80-year-old or older, and he made a priority, and he did it for 40 days. Now he comes down. Okay, carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he wasn't aware 
that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. When we draw close to God, God is holy. This is a lot of theological terms today, I apologize, but let's just get them out of here. God is holy, which means that he's not like humans. He's not like the world. He's set apart. He's righteous. It's not saying that when we read the Bible, we're going to become exactly like God. It means that we believe that the more we spend time with God, it changes us for the better. When we say, hey, this year I'm going to go through the Bible. I'm going to, I'm going to slog through the, the Pentateuch knowing that God's words matter in my life. I'm going to spend time every day stopping, praying, taking time to remember to get right size with God, to remember, hey, God is God and I am not. In that priority list, God is the first priority. I'm going to take time to say, hey, I'm going to spend time with God. And it changes me. I'm going to take time to just pause and to realize that time is something that I can invest anywhere I want. I can play, remember those, those numbers? I had 10 times 52 times 26, 13,520 hours. Now, maybe you say, David, that's way more hours that you've done on video games than I've done on anything else. But let's take some of those hours and start investing it on quiet time with God because spending time with God changes us. They say that 10,000 hours lets you master anything. Where am I investing my time? I'm not saying you're going to master being a Christian. I'm not promising that. But the reality is, is we're given this gift of time. None of us has promised tomorrow, but today we have time. Where am I investing my time? Because this whole idea of game over, when it feels like game over and God says, hey, I'm the God of the second chance, you can continue. Okay, great. Now I have this time in my second chance. Where am I investing it? I've had this fresh start. I've had this new opportunity. Where am I investing it? Am I spending time with God? Knowing that when that happens, this is not the reason we do it, but people do notice. When I work on praying and spending time with God and making Him first, people do notice that. People do see a change on us. It's kind of like Aaron and all of them looking at Moses' face and being like, wow. We're not necessarily going to flatten people with our radiant appearance, but we know that Jesus is the light of the world and He can shine through us. And so what's the outcome? So, so what happens with all that? So we know that in the Old Testament, that the Old Testament, who's the hero of the Old Testament? Is it Moses? It's not. Is it, is it King David? Uh, who's the whole hero of the Old Testament? Who's the hero of the whole Bible? It's God. Okay. The people keep failing, so I'm going to spoil that. However, even through their failure, God keeps giving second chances. Here's the final verse in Exodus. The final verse in Exodus says this, The cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle during the day, and at night fire glowed inside the cloud so the whole family of Israel could see it. This continued throughout all their journeys. God is with us. God is beyond us. God is there in our wilderness. We've heard a lot about a lot of wilderness going on in our world right now. God is there with us in our wilderness. Also, after our failure, God gives us a second chance, and we are never alone. Sometimes I like having us read these statements together, so let's let this be truth. We're going to read starting with God, ending with alone. In three, two, one, God is with us, beyond us, there in our wilderness, gives us the second chance, and we are never alone. And I want to do it one more time because I really, this is a biblical truth. This 
summarizes so much of what we can learn from Exodus. Let's do it one more time in three, two, one. God is with us, beyond us, there in our wilderness, gives us the second chance, and we are never alone. And here's our big idea. God is all about the second chance. God is all about the second chance. That's the truth. If we look at the whole story of the Old Testament, you're going to see cycles. When I said, how did we get here with Exodus 34, you'll see that we put all the words in a, in a circle, a cycle. We see cycles of disobedience in the Old Testament. That happens over and over and over. When we come to the book of Judges, you're going to see cycles of disobedience. The people don't get it, don't get it. They kind of get it, then they don't get it, they don't get it, they don't get it. When we come to Kings, same deal. In our lives, we have this too. But God gives us that second chance. God is all about the second chance. What do we do with it? And so we like to give an opportunity to respond. Are you struggling to see past your failure today? Are you looking at today and saying, you know, it feels like game over? You know, David, you're saying game over, continue. I'm not seeing continue. I'm just seeing game over. I'm seeing crushed. I'm seeing failure. I'm seeing defeat. I'm seeing disobedience. It's crushing. I can't deal with it. It's too much. Is there something in your life you'd like God to make right? Is there something you want to give to God and say, God, this is a mess, and I'm looking for the second chance, but first I've got to turn it over to you. We take this opportunity to invite the elders of the church down forward, and we're going to have a final song. As the elders of the church come forward, if you are feeling like you're struggling to see past failure, or there's something in your life you'd like God to make right, I invite you to do a brave thing. Come down. Have someone pray over you. Not that that magically fixes anything because it doesn't. Let's take the first step of obedience and say, God, I want to see past my failure. I'm struggling to help me give me your perspective. Show me that you are the God of the second chance. If I'm struggling with something I want God to make right, it's not that when I come and have someone pray for me that everything's going to be flawlessly perfect, but I'm going to be on the path towards reconciliation, towards letting go, letting God, and realizing he's the God of the second chance.